It's easy to play it safe. We want to hide behind our veneer, our stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We want to pretend we're okay. We come to church and people say, how are you? And what is our traditional response? Fine. How did we get there? Whatever happened that that became part of our liturgy, how are you? Fine. It's been interesting because people will ask me how I'm doing and, and I tend to say, okay. And it's amazing how often people will go, only okay? I'm sorry I failed you as your pastor that I'm only okay today. In fact, I'm okay most days. Great? Well, that's a, that's a pretty amazing day. And I'll take great. God's great. God's great but me. I'm okay. <laughs> I'll take okay. Because God's at work in the okay. Learning to be real with each other is so important, but it begins with being real with ourselves. And that's what we have been focusing on these first weeks of our series, Renovation of the Heart. And we really got down to it last week when we talked about our need Indeed, God's call for us to join him in the discovery of what's deep in our own hearts, our own brokenness, our own futile ways of thinking that get in the way. And we've come at it a lot of ways. We ended last week with four um, adages, prayer adages to come out of the psalm, search me, O God, test me, see me, show me. And I wonder if you've been making that your prayer this week. How many of you have found yourself saying that this week and becoming more mindful of that voice in your head that is part of every conversation before you even engage and react? That's so important because there is no real redemptive communication in the body of Christ if we are not learning to become authentic about ourselves. We learned in Ephesians 4 that the ability of the Christian community to speak truth in love to one another is critical in the whole process of spiritual formation for us to grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. You see, here's the thing. God speaks to me through his word, and God certainly speaks to me when I learn to shut up and pay attention to the still small voice. But God also speaks to me through you. And there are things that I will not hear from him if we are not a redemptive community where we learn somehow to speak that truth to one another. And what that brings up is a whole set of issues for us. First of all, how do I know when I'm seeing truth? I mean, we're so quick to judge. That voice in our head is so quick to rush ahead and to pronounce judgment. And we've learned not to trust that. So so how do I see truth? And then secondly, how, when, and where do I speak that observation, that truth lovingly? And then ultimately, because I need to be the object of people speaking to me, how do I hear truth? That's what we're going to talk about these next three weeks. We're entering into that part of our study on renovation of the heart that's about redemptive conversation. And I think this is going to be extremely helpful to you. 
Now, right away, when you bring up the whole idea of authenticity with one another, especially if your whole experience in church life is coming on Sunday morning, that may scare a fair amount of you because like all of us, you have stuff that you wouldn't just stand up and blurt out right here. And, and please don't. <laughs> please keep that to yourself and God today. There are appropriate levels of authenticity based on our gathering. There are men in my life who know things about me that only they know, and that's an extremely short list. And their being aware of those things in my life is redemptive for me. It's redemptive to have men who tell me that God's love abounds, that I'm a child of God, that allow me to confess the areas in my life that I want God to still transform and to not just lovingly call me out, but to call me forward, you know, to do it in the context of grace, a grace-saturated environment, which we talk about in our vision statement, in our core values and in our relational commitments. You may, you may find this interesting. Um, if you are involved in leadership at our church, if you lead a ministry or teach or spiritual influencer in any way, you actually sign a covenant to be part of what we call the leadership community. Our goal here is to keep the bar pretty low in terms of inclusion into the body of Christ. If you're here as a seeker or a committed follower of Jesus, you're welcome to call this your home and to jump right in. But when it comes to leadership, we raise the bar. And we call on our leaders to commit fully to our vision, to the priorities of how we do church. And part of that covenant is to follow a set of relational commitments as to how we're going to deal with one another, how we're going to handle conflict, how we are going to care for our children, what spiritual discipline, what biblical counseling looks like, and we covenant to engage in this way. I believe that those documents, those relational commitments are more important than our bylaws. Our bylaws help us structure and make choices and have appropriate accountability, but our relational covenants reflect who we are, not as an organization, but as an organism, as the body of Christ, which is really the church. The organization is just the trellis or the skeleton. The church is the organic body of Christ. The, the, the scriptures do not offer a constitution and bylaws for how to do church. That would be great, because that way we wouldn't have all the different ways that we do church. And that's because the Bible never refers to the church as a building in the physical sense, as a spiritual building as an analogy, yes. But it also never refers to the church as an institution. And when the institution becomes more important than the movement of the Holy Spirit through the organism, which is the church, then those churches die. Those churches get stifled. All that to say how we respond to God and respond to one another so that the Holy Spirit moves so that we keep the unity of the body, as Ephesians 4 says, is absolutely critical. So we already aspire to being this authentic peacemaking community. And so to spend this time looking at what it means to have redemptive conversations across the various levels of communion that we experience as believers is really important. And today, we're going to take the broadest look at how conversations go. Now, I want to uh, begin in James chapter four, 
Next week, we're going to drill down into Scripture. Today, I want to use a couple of brief passages just to get us all on the same page in understanding conversational dynamics. James 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If you have been with us throughout this whole series, you may recognize some common ideas here, how our heart causes our conflict with one another. Where do fights really come from? Is it from words? No. It's from the longing of our heart to get our way. And even when we talk to God, we're trying to get our way with God. That's why some of you are in an argument with God right now, (laughs) because he's not playing by your rules and your expectations. So the condition of our hearts play out into our conversations, and we have quarrels. Now, we're a growing church. We have moved quite quickly from a launched church. I mean, think about this. Last week, we had 370 people between the two services. We have had as many as 400 recently. We have become what appears to be a well-established church, but yet we're only five years old. It's like the kid in the class that's bigger than everybody else, and everybody mistakes him for a 12-year-old, but he's five. (laughs) And we're in this building that's a century old. So it's easy to show up here and think, well, here's a church that probably has everything together. Anybody on the inside knows that's not true, because we're desperately trying to catch up. I was the staff when we started, and that was only five years ago. So we're still growing into who we are. We're going to set up processes. We're in the midst of doing that so other people can step into important roles of leadership. But here's the thing, no matter what process we set up, the next hundred people that show up here, those processes will no longer be adequate. So if you're used to being a church that isn't growing, then those processes get real comfortable because you learn to expect them over and over and over again. And of course that's the case because everything's predictable. But when God's moving, when the kingdom is growing, it gets uncomfortable because we get uncomfortable when our processes aren't working. Now, partly we need to create processes that will grow with us, but there are some things that we just aren't gonna be able to do that. My point in that is that when God is at work, there will always be opportunities for us to wrestle with issues. Our final week, we're gonna actually talk about how to fight fair the value of conflict because we need it. There's nothing immoral about conflict. There's nothing immoral about having differences of opinion. But in order to have conflict be something that is restorative or growth-oriented or moves us forward in the right way, we need to learn how to have redemptive conversations. Does that make sense to you? And we all need to work on it. I need to keep working on it. This is an area that you can tell in this series. I've wrestled with myself. It's familiar ground for me. It doesn't mean that I'm an all pro at it. So we're working on this together, but let's aspire to it. 
Now, where we're going to look today is Proverbs 18. Let's say this together. Words satisfy the mind as much as fruit does the stomach. Good talk is as gratifying as a good harvest. Words kill, words give life. They are either poison or fruit. Say those last two words again. Turn to the person next to you and say, you choose. (laughs) Some of you said that with a little too much vigor. (laughs) First of all, good conversation, what we're referring to as redemptive conversation, is a blessing. It's like a great harvest. It produces fruit in our lives. But here's the thing. Our words are never neutral. Now, pass the ketchup. That, That might be neutral. When we converse, we are either poisoning a situation or blessing it. You either kill or bring to life with your words. And you get to choose. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to start looking at how a conversation works and how, without even realizing it, we're bringing poison into our conversations, and every one of us does it. So I've got a number of diagrams. We've been using diagrams throughout this series. We're going to start by looking at a simple conversation. Now, for most of us, this is what we think takes place. I say something, you hear me, and then you say something back, and then I hear you. Now, if it's that simple, then why do we end up, when I say I, I'm speaking in the the first person for all of us. Why is it when I say something and you hear, what you say back to me is often nothing to do with what I said to you? And then what do I say? You weren't listening. I said, and then the other person goes, no, you didn't. This is what you said. How can something this simple get so off the rails so quickly, well, because that conversation does not exist. Conversations take place in four levels. There's what I want to say to you. And here's the thing, what I want to say, even I haven't figured out yet, because what I want to say is bigger than what I'm even aware. But then there's what I actually say, which may or may not accurately describe even what I think I want to say. Here's the thing, you are never as good at saying what you think you're saying. Vit and I will be talking about someone and then all of a sudden she'll say, um, and she's coming over later today and I'll think she's talking about the person we were just talking about but her mind's already on to somebody else. (laughs) And in her mind, it makes perfect sense and I have to say, who? And why is she coming over? And that's just a simple little example of how what we presume everybody's thinking when we say it, everybody's not thinking. So what we say in some ways is never what we think we're saying. Then there's what you hear, and this is what we're going to talk about next week. We are really bad listeners. Even those of us that think we're good listeners, you really, you stink at listening. (laughs) You do. You do. And so when you sit there and say, but you said, you could argue what I said. I'm not going to believe you because I think I said something else. Or at least I know what I meant. It's so much more, this is kind of depressing to think about this, isn't it? (laughs) There's what you hear me say, 
And then there's how I interpret what I've heard. What you or what I as the listener think the speaker means. So I make an interpretation of it. Now, your mind works so much faster than words. What I think you mean is happening faster than I'm picking up what you're actually saying. I'm predicting what you're going to say. That's why so many of you finish people's sentences. It's like, I'm going to win. <laughs> These people don't have a clue of what you want to say because their mind is working so fast. And our words are so inadequate and are so slow. I'm going to add one more thing to this picture, and that is this familiar set of filters that we've talked about that affect everything that we think. So what I want to say comes out of my mixed beliefs about God, about life, about people, about myself, my hurts, my needs, my fears, my dreams, my history. All these things are affecting the need I have out of which I'm speaking. And then when the other person hears, they're affected by their own set of filters and lenses. So where does that leave us? Well, I want to make four observations about a simple conversation. First of all, <laughs> there's no such thing. <laughs> there is no such thing as a simple conversation. It's always far more complex than you think it is. We have to learn to slow down. We have to be willing to work through the process because words are only one part of the conversation. And hearing what somebody says is not the same as understanding what they're trying to communicate. Getting to the understanding is really critical. Second, it's nobody's fault. It's nobody's fault that conversations are more complex than most of us have patience for. This is just how we're made. Words are just a vehicle to communion, but communion, which is at the heart of the word communication, communion takes place when our hearts connect, when we understand each other's needs and minds. Words are just tools. Do you understand that? Stop arguing over the words and learn that real communication is about getting to what the speaker is feeling and needs to communicate and trying to understand, and that takes a lot. Third, it's everybody's fault. <laughs> it's nobody's fault in that this is how we're wired, but it's everybody's fault because all of us bring our brokenness and our incapacities to it. So get a little humble. Those of you that take such pride in your gift of communication, those of you that refuse to admit that you could have said anything wrong in a conversation, get a little humble. Stop being mad at the person who's not getting what you're trying to say to them as though they're the issue. Get a little humble, back up, and look at yourself. That's why we've spent these last few weeks trying to develop this habit of being in tune suspiciously of that voice in our own head. Take responsibility. And then finally, you can choose. We can choose to use those incredible tools that God gave us called words to approach that very sophisticated thing called a conversation in a way that produces life and blessing rather than bringing poison and damage into relationships. We can choose that every time we wrestle with something together in this church. And rather than having to apologize to the world around us for 
our dysfunctionality, we show the world that we are one in Christ. We show the world how people who love one another and love God work through even the most difficult things. And trust me, there will be, and certainly are right now, difficult, important conversations for all of us to enter into. So let's go back to that statement again from Proverbs 18. Say this with me. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. Let's change that to I choose. Say the whole verse again. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. I choose. So how do we begin going about making that choice so that our deep heart's needs don't dominate and cause conflict and arguments, as James says, when communication goes wrong? Well, we go back to the book of James, to a verse that we introduced last week, James 1.19. Say this with me. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, back to my own journey of transformation a little bit. When I shared about coming to that point where God revealed to me my core issue and started really developing my um, my willingness to be aware of my own heart, my willingness to look at every situation and pay attention to what's going on in my heart and make sure that my response is godly, not driven by some of this brokenness in my own life. And that's still a process. That's a lifelong process. But I've learned so much in these years. Initially, God brought me to this verse and it became a set of ideas to help me move forward. Let's take it apart. There's three things James says. First of all, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Last week, we pointed out that in our natural broken way of thinking, we do exactly the opposite. Our emotions rush forward and we respond emotionally. That's what anger is. Tension, discomfort, dissatisfaction. We rush to that, and then that leads the way, and then we just start talking without achieving any understanding of the other side. And when we do finally listen, the only listening we do is to argue our point. We're listening to show you how wrong you are. It's really a brilliant verse. It's an amazing verse because it it challenges us to reverse what comes natural to us. Don't lead with your emotions, as Eugene Peterson puts it, lead with your ears. I had to come up with a thing to say to remind myself to be quick to listen. The thing I kept saying to myself over and over again, especially in the more difficult conversations, is this statement, there's more going on than I understand. There's more going on here than I understand. If I remind myself of that, doesn't that help me listen more? If, if I was going to listen first, what might be something that would come out of my mouth before I begin making my point? Yes, a question. So for the longest time, I would say to myself, don't do anything until you ask a couple questions. 
Don't respond until you ask a couple questions. Now, here's the problem. If I've already jumped ahead emotionally, then my questions are leading questions. They're accusatory questions. They're rhetorical questions, which aren't questions at all. Next week, we'll talk about the whole discipline and gift of godly listening. That's next week. We're going to do a whole sermon on that. But let's begin using James's exhortation to say to myself, there's more going on than I understand. Don't you think that that would just transform a lot of the ways you open your mouth so quickly? Now, we're going to use slow to anger as the next statement. It just happens to be the way I want my adages to show up. Slow to anger, this is what I had to learn to say to myself. I will not let my emotions get in the way of my understanding. I will not let my emotions get in the way of my understanding. Our mind works so fast, like we talked about, and our emotions come running right along with our minds, and we already know how we feel about something before we even understand it. And it keeps us from really listening, so we don't come to understanding. There are a lot of extremely godly Christians in churches who have the gift of saying a wise and timely word. But I know it's hard to believe. There's a handful that rush to judgment. Some churches, it becomes part of their core identity. Everybody thinks they have the right to judge and pass their opinion on before there's any really thoughtful conversation. And I found myself in a setting like that, and there were a lot of people used to thinking that they had it all figured out. So when they showed up in my office, they were already angry, and they'd say things that were you know, hurtful and rude and had no right to really make that observation because they didn't know all the facts. And what would happen to me, first of all, let me say, I accept the fact that that's part of this job. You have to be willing to hear people wherever they're coming from. But back then, I I wasn't very good at at doing that because when they said those things, it came right to my heart. I was wounded by it. It hurt. And so I read someplace (laughs) that when you're in a difficult conversation, rather than taking all the words right to the heart, picture a screen in front of you and picture the words just showing up on the screen, not in here. Look at those words and try to decipher through all the hurtful speech and all the hyperbole and all the extreme statements, try to discern what you can enter into there that talks about the issue. It did help me in those moments say, look, This person right now feels an awful lot of things about me, and there certainly may be some of them that are true, but there's a need here. There's a need for understanding. There's there's something that needs to be addressed, and how do you remove yourself from the hurt so that you can listen? We need to remind ourselves, I will not let my emotions hurt my understanding. And then finally, slow to speak. I will choose to give life and blessing with my words. Initially, my adage for slow to speak was this, don't trust yourself. (laughs) I had to realize I'm so quick to talk. I need to speak more carefully. Now, two weeks from now, we'll do a whole sermon on what it means to speak truthfully and speak redemptively. So I'm not going to go there, but my point is these become stepping stones forward into redemptive conversations. So let's say them together. Quick to listen. 
There's more going on than I understand. Slow to anger. I will not let my emotions hurt my understanding and slow to speak. I will choose to give life and blessing with my words. Go back to Proverbs 18.21. Words satisfy the mind as much as fruit does the stomach. Good talk is as gratifying as a good harvest. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't it be great that that's what we experience with one another? Like the ripest fruit in season is our times together, even with the most difficult subject matter. And when we speak, we're producing the harvest, not that we get what we want. Let me be clear about something here. Talking about how to have redemptive conversations is not a conversation on how to have win-win conversations. It's not about how to compromise. It's not about how to give everybody what they want. In most redemptive conversations, there's what I want, there's what you want, and then there's what God wants. And that's what redemptive conversations seek. The fact is, there are times when we can have such strong differences of opinion that one has to yield. So we're not talking about how to win every conversation. We're talking about how to redeem every conversation so that God is honored, so that we all grow, and ultimately we all become mature people in Christ. Because God isn't after your being right. God's after your being righteous. God isn't after your comfort. He's after your character. And how these conversations produce that in us is the most important thing. So let's commit ourselves to that. Listen to this in terms of our relationships. 2 Corinthians 5.17, so familiar, right? If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself and then gave us the work of reconciliation. So just think about what that would look like, redemptive conversations here that show the world what it would mean to be reconciled to God as well. The cross is always our path to forgiveness. And now, Father, we rejoice and thank you that we have been reconciled to God because of your great sacrifice, that you took our sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God. And because of that, we are reconciled to God. And I pray, Father, that in celebrating our common forgiveness in Christ through the Lord's table today, we would be more profoundly reconciled to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.